Welcome, thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll be discussing common questions from general practice about medication use in ADHD. I'm Dr. Robin Barnes. I work as a GP in a central city practice, and I'm joined today by Matt Eggleston, a child and adolescent psychiatrist with Canterbury District Health Board. Matt has an interest in neurodevelopmental aspects of psychiatry, including ADHD and the autism spectrum disorders. He currently chairs the New Zealand Autism Spectrum Living Guidelines Group. Thank you, Matt, for giving your time for this discussion today. Firstly, perhaps you could clarify the language around ADHD and ADD for us. Sure. Well, um, back in DSM-3, the statistical manual we use to diagnose ADHD, we used to refer to ADD, or Attention Deficit Disorder, with and without hyperactivity. And then under DSM-4, it changed to ADHD. Um, with subtypes and so there is a there is an inattentive subtype a hyperactive impulsive subtype and a combined subtype and uh, so it's just different names for the same condition um, essentially right so ADHD is the one used these days basically yeah ADHD is DSM-4 and DSM-5 DSM-5 is what we're currently using okay thank you for that so as I said before, we're talking really about medication used in ADHD rather than describing the condition. So um, I wondered what age should medication be considered from uh, from a very young age or a bit older? Yeah, so the most common age that ADHD is diagnosed is around seven to nine years of age. Um, we sometimes see teenagers presenting for the first time with ADHD and adult ADHD is becoming increasingly common. But most people with really significant ADHD will present in childhood. Um, ADHD is pretty rarely diagnosed in preschoolers. And um, so in kids under six years of age, we tend to be fairly cautious about making a diagnosis and very cautious about initiating treatment. Um, the reasons for that are that the treatments that we use for ADHD stimulants work quite a lot less well for kids under six years of age um, and there are a lot more adverse effects. And so guidelines in relation to ADHD and its treatment suggest that a psychosocial approach should be used in the first instance for younger kids. Um, and that would usually be a parent-based program like Incredible Years or Triple P parenting groups, that sort of thing. And as a GP, I'm aware there are different types of medication. Um, basically divided a stimulant and non-stimulant type. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So stimulants are usually the first medication that we use for ADHD, but there are some exceptions to that. Um, but generally we would start, the treatment algorithm would be starting with a stimulant, usually methylphenidate, so that's Ritalin or Rubifin. Um, and if people don't tolerate that or don't respond well to it, we will often try a second stimulant, dexamphetamine, in New Zealand. Unfortunately, in New Zealand, dexamphetamine is only a short-acting medicine, so there's no long-acting form, which is quite limiting. Um, and then after the stimulants, we might consider atomoxetine or perhaps one or two other uh, lesser-known medications. So the main reasons for not using a stimulant are with, when it doesn't work. So you might have tried one or both stimulants and you have a poor response. Or when adverse effects are too significant and they preclude you continuing. Or very occasionally where there's a history of 
severe substance use in the family and you're not confident the child's going to receive the medication and in that case a non-stimulant would be um, worth trialling. So in New Zealand there are a number of uh, short and long-acting forms of methylphenidate. Um, there is Ritalin, Rupifin, Ritalin long-acting, Ritalin sustained release and Concerta. Uh, which give a fairly good range of options uh, for, for, for different people at different times. In terms of non-stimulant options in New Zealand, they're quite limited. So we have access to atomoxetine, uh, which is no longer on special authority numbers, so GPs can prescribe that. Um, and, and also for adults with ADHD, they could consider atomoxetine without the need to see a psychiatrist, potentially. Um, so atomoxetine would be used as a second-line treatment. If people don't respond to those three treatments, it's quite difficult. So in the United States, they have two long-acting two long alpha-2 agonists. One's called clonidine XR. The other one's guanfacine, extended release. Um, we don't have those in New Zealand, but we sometimes use, use short-acting clonidine as a, as a kind of fourth-line medicine. Clonidine really, though, is that would be a, um, a specialist-only kind of initiation. I wouldn't expect GPs to be initiating that. Okay. Thank you. And what are the common side effects of medication that GPs, parents, or some of the slightly older patients might need to be aware of to watch out for? So the most common adverse effects of stimulants are difficulties with eating, failing to gain weight or sustain weight, and... Um, difficulties with sleeping, particularly initial insomnia, and they occur in about 20% of people. We like height and weight to be monitored on a three-monthly basis for people who are established on stimulants, um, and we've become more concerned over time about failure to gain weight because it impacts on height, and in some of the long-term treatment studies, people who are maintained on stimulants long-term uh, an inch shorter in adulthood than those who irregularly get the medicine. Uh, and most boys won't thank you for that. You know, girls, less, less of a concern, but um, that's a consideration. So in terms of those who struggle to gain weight, um, we utilise a number of strategies. Um, often giving medication after meals is helpful. We try hard to increase the calorie density of the diet. Um, there are some quite useful handouts on that. Adding smoothies and snacks during the day is helpful, particularly a supper before bedtime when kids' appetite is usually more significant. Um, and sometimes we resort to dietary supplementation with things like Ensure, but that's pretty uncommon these days. If growth continues to be a problem, uh, we sometimes need to think about reducing the dose or considering a different medicine. Um, so that's, that's worthy of consideration. We also advise GPs to measure pulse and blood pressure three monthly because um, pulse and blood pressure can be both increased a little by stimulants. It's usually not too significant, but it can be in some patients. Although children's mood is generally better when taking stimulants, sometimes the medications just don't suit particular children and it can lead to an increase in emotionality or irritability or low mood or depressive symptoms or sometimes even aggression. So usually aggression would be less significant once, once young people are started on a stimulant, but occasionally it, it goes in the other direction and can be quite unhelpful. So these symptoms are usually 
pretty apparent early in the trial, but um, they can occur after dose increases. And, and if that happens, you know, reducing the dose back down to what it was may be, may be necessary. The worries that parents have, they often worry that their kids will lose their personality um, or be zombie-like, and that generally in indicates that the dose is too high, even for kids at quite low doses. That's completely reversible. You know, the next day they'll be back to the, their normal self. Um, parents also worry about increased substance use problems in adulthood and a number of trials have looked at that and there's no evidence that using a, a stimulant increases the chances that you're going to have a substance use problem. Uh, there's a little bit of ev evidence suggesting that it may actually be a little bit helpful. Um, tics and anxiety are quite commonly associated with ADHD and for most people stimulants can be given to people with those associated conditions fairly well. Uh, just occasionally those things can become more prominent um, and so if people develop you know much more anxiety or, or very significant tics um, you know dose reduction or considering an alternative might be required. Thank you. Um, as a GP, we tend to see patients more frequently than they'd be seen by the specialist, um, particularly if you know, the condition increases and waiting lists increase. Should the GP be looking at altering the dose of these medicines as the child grows, or should we wait to be guided by the specialist? Yeah. You know, we'd, we'd encourage GPs to consider dose adjustments, but to do that judiciously. The thing that's particularly important for younger kids is monitoring weight uh, and so you know taking a weight before doses increased and ensuring in the ensuing months that, that you know that's progressing reasonably well is really important and sometimes uh, reducing the dose may again be required. Um, the SNAP ADHD rating scale forms which um, GPs have access to can be quite helpful in terms of monitoring how significant symptoms are before an increase and also the result, you know, they can be quite helpful just in terms of monitoring. Um, so yeah, it can be worthwhile having a trial of it, an increase um, and just being flexible, you know, monitoring and, and adjusting back down if need be. And can you tell me about um, when we might be considering to reduce the dose or wean the child, young person off medication? So the general principles are by about midway through adolescence a third of kids will no longer have impairment from their ADHD and a trial off medication uh, could be considered. We can't really tell which children are going to be in the group that do well or those that aren't so that can be difficult. If there's doubt that medications are useful or still required. It can be, it can be useful to do a trial off med medicine for a week or two. Um, we'd usually do that in term two or term three when kids are settled into school, but it's also not the end of the year. So teachers know the child and they can tell you, you know, has that gone fairly well or has it gone very poorly and does the medication need to be reinstated? But um, it's really just evaluating that year by year, you know, whether there are more benefits um, compared with disadvantages from the medication. And um, really something that I think a lot of GPs are interested in is do you have any suggestions for us managing these patients who we think may well have ADHD but are, are 
kind of stuck on the waiting list to be seen? Yeah, our wait list is a really big concern for all of us, and it puts you know GPs, patients, families in a difficult position. If there are behavioural issues, we would really strongly advise that treatments sought for that independently, so um, through right service, right time, access to evidence-based treatment approaches for, for behavioural difficulties are available. Um, we would encourage that. For kids with learning difficulties, we'd encourage parents to be supported to go along to school and ask to see the special needs coordinators, the SENCOs, uh, or perhaps ask for involvement of the resource teacher of learning and behaviour who look to assist kids with learning and behavioural issues, um, or perhaps engage the Ministry of Education. Um, so they're the two most common things that are, that are really helpful to do before we become involved. Unfortunately, in Christchurch at the moment, there aren't any child and adolescent psychiatrists doing private work, um, so that's not available uh, in terms of diagnosis and medication. But there are a number of psychologists who will do an assessment for ADHD, and it could be quite helpful to start with that for people who have uh, sufficient means. And some of the psychologists can do some really quite good early work um, with non-medication approaches. You mentioned earlier that atomoxetine, which is a non-stimulant medication, is available in New Zealand without a special authority prescription now. So I can see some of my colleagues might be tempted to say, well, we can't get you seen by a specialist for a special authority for Richelin Concerto. Perhaps we should try this. What would your thinking be on that? I think it's a little like SSRIs for depression, that there is potentially a role for general practitioners to consider atomoxetine, but to be quite cautious. Um, I think establishing that uh, a diagnosis of ADHD is really very likely. Um, I think excluding other things like trauma, which can look like ADHD, would be important. Um, but I think some GPs, if they're confident about those things, um, I, I personally don't see why they shouldn't do it. I wouldn't necessarily encourage it to, ha to happen in all cases. Um, atomoxetine has some advantages. It's uh, not a medication which is abused. Um, so, you know, very advantageous in, in, in those kind of situations. Uh, it tends to work um, somewhat less well for school. So you get around two thirds of the response of a stimulant. Uh, but it has the advantage of being a 24 hour medicine because it's chemically related to antidepressants. It takes a while to start working usually takes a while to work up to a decent dose. Um, so, yeah, it's worthy of consideration. There are some adverse effects from atomoxetine which are worth thinking about. So it tends to be better tolerated than stimulants, but um, about one in a million children develop a, a hepatic problem, um, hepatotoxicity, uh, which can be a, a real problem. Um, and because it's chemically related to an antidepressant, um, there's a risk of increasing suicidal ideation or hopelessness, those sorts of things, and a small risk of uh, bipolarity uh, in people with a family history of that. But otherwise, it's a fairly safe medication. So um, I think, you know, wouldn't necessarily encourage it, but, you know, that's worth thinking about. Okay, thank you. And are there any... Um support groups for families. I can imagine that families are very much impacted by it's not just the one patient, it's the whole family scenario. Yeah, there are two support 
groups that are worth mentioning. Uh, there's a Canterbury Neurodiversity and ADHD support group through Facebook. Uh, and there's also ADHD NZ, um, which has some quite good information on ADHD. ADHD is interesting in that we'd expect about a 25% of first degree relatives to have ADHD. So, you know, often we'll have a child with ADHD and then we look at one or other of the parents and and think that they have quite significant issues themselves. And it's not uncommon for um, families to get an ADHD diagnosis in a child and then uh, think, oh, actually, I've got a lot of those symptoms myself and it's impairing and seek a diagnosis for themselves. Um, so there are some good supports and there's, there's some pretty good websites too for ADHD these days. Um, so my favourite's the um, NIMH ADHD booklet. It's uh, 50-odd pages, but very evidence-based. Um, that's worth looking at. Um, Wikipedia is actually surprisingly good these days. I'm not quite sure we should end on Wikipedia, but w do you have any more thoughts? Wikipedia's pretty good. Um, no, I think, I think that's about it. Right. I think that's been very helpful to me, and thank you for your time and sharing expertise with us today. It's much appreciated. It's a pleasure. And thanks to all the GPs. We do really appreciate the work they do. Thank you.